Galatians chapter 3. If you're not sure where that's at, you can go to the Gospels. You've got Matthew. Make your way to the right in your Bible through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Galatians is after that. Galatians chapter 3. And once you've found your place there, if you'll stand in honor of God's word, we'll read God's word together. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 19 through verse 26 tonight. As we look at this thought, the most valuable lesson from the toughest teacher. The most valuable lesson from the toughest teacher. So we're going to give consideration to that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Maybe just a little bit of review. I realize some of you haven't been here for the entire series, but what's happening in the book of Galatians is you've got uh, what are called Judaizers, where they've risen up in the churches of Galatia and they're teaching this doctrine that, that Christ initiates your righteousness before God, but the Old Testament law finishes your righteousness, that you can find a greater righteousness, a greater acceptance, a greater belonging with God if you will keep the Old Testament law. If you will be circumcised, if you will keep the dietary laws, if you will keep the holy days, then you can find a greater place with God. That's the idea of what was being taught. And Paul's been combating that from a, a multiplicity of angles throughout chapter 3. And the, what we looked at last week was he combated it through the covenant promise of God, as we've looked at on Genesis on Sunday nights, that God made a covenant with Abraham, and that covenant was a covenant that was by faith and not by law. And so he said, the promises of God, which are by faith, take precedent over the law. Well, now he's going to address maybe a question that would come up, and that's this. Well, what's the point of the law then? Okay, so verse 19 Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Talking about Jesus Christ there. And it, the law, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid for if there had been a law which a uh, given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The most valuable lesson from the toughest teacher. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. We'll get into our message tonight. When you think back on your school days, you can probably think of some teachers you really liked. I mean, there had to at least be one, right? At least one. I mean, they were really cool. They were very relatable. They, they, maybe, maybe you had a young teacher and they kind of dressed hip like the rest of you were back then. And, and so they were an awesome teacher. But on top of that, their workload was very light. 
the quizzes were kind of easy. The tests weren't very hard. The assignments were kind of elementary a little bit, even in high school. And so you look forward to having that teacher. And if I asked you right now, tell me what their last name is, you could probably tell me. But you also probably have some teachers you weren't too fond of. Hey, they may have even been cool still. They still may have been very relatable, maybe very interesting. Maybe it was even a, a class subject that you happened to like, but you knew if I have this teacher, that is going to be the most challenging class I have this year. <laughs> we can remember teachers like that. For me, it was Mrs. Kokenzie. She was my 11th grade English teacher, and she was tough. Now, going from homeschool into a Christian school that was really more of a college prep type uh, education there, I really struggled my sophomore year, that first year in real school, as we might call it. And I got, I got C's and B's, but then by the time I had been a junior, I had kind of figured things out and started getting, I mean, just about straight A's at that point, except in her class. <laughs> she was hard. I mean, and grammar already was not my forte, but in this particular class that year, we had to write a 15-page research paper in single spacing, 12-point font times New Roman. And so, I mean, basically, as long as you can go without shortening the, or, or shrinking the font. And so it was a long paper. It was by far the longest paper I had ever written. I mean, my mom was my only teacher for nine years, and and she never made me write a paper that long. She was the easiest teacher I ever had. <laughs> she was the cool teacher even. And so, but when I, when I went there, Mrs. Kokenzie, she was tough. So I, I, I've put a lot of time, a lot of effort into this research paper. I was doing it actually on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so I'm doing this research paper. I've done all my bibliographies. I've got my rough draft all together. I go to turn that in and I'm excited about it. I think I've done a good job. I actually made it to 15 pages, which is good. And so I was excited about it. Well, a couple of days later, get the paper back. And it looked like she had slaughtered a sacrifice on it with red pen, if you know what I'm saying. And I got a 75%. Now, in my six-point grade scale at that Christian school, that was a D. It was a bad grade. And so I've got a 76% grade here. And I talked with her after school for about an hour. And she worked with me on that paper. And, and there was a lot. <laughs> And uh, she said, well, I think if you make some improvements here and maybe reword this and restate this and maybe shrink this a little bit and, and just make some improvements, I think you'll be fine. And so I said, OK, well, I, I took took that to task, went to work on it. I'm trying as hard as I can. I've even rewritten some paragraphs. I mean, put a lot of work into it. And it's time to turn that final draft. And I've got some confidence. I should at least get a B. I can't get much worse than I got last time unless I flat out fail. Well, we turned that in and just a couple days later, we get the grade back and I got a 75. <laughs> I lost a point even on it. I mean, she was that kind of teacher. And I remember talking with her about that paper and, and she says, you know, Mark, I know this is really hard. I know I'm not an easy teacher and it's that way on purpose. I promise you though, you keep working hard when you go to college, you're going to hate me right now, but when you go to college, you'll love me and you'll be thankful for it. 
And I walked out of that office saying, this woman's crazy. I'm never, no way, no how am I ever going to thank her for this. This is torture. Well, a couple years later, I'm in college and I'm going through the English classes and they were a snap, easy as could be. And so when I get done with my freshman year, I come back to for Christmas break. They're having a basketball game at the school that I went to. I go over and I see her and I had to eat my lunch. I went up to her and I said, you know what? You were right. I'm thankful that you, you taught us so hard because I learned some valuable lessons from you that went long into my college time. And so what, what I've found to be true, and you may, not, you may not find this to be true at all, but what I've found to be true anyways in my experience is this, that the hardest teachers I had always had the most valuable lessons for my life. They were the best teachers. They were the ones I got the most out of, the ones I grew the most from. Even in Bible college, I, I, it was, like I said, after how high school was, my Bible college experience was really not that difficult. And uh, graduated salutatorian. I think the only reason I didn't get valedictorian is because there was a guy who was from a class the year before, but he took a semester off, came back, and he had a, a hundredth of a percentage better than my GPA. And so it went, I'm just saying, it went easier. It went easier. But there was one teacher there as well, Brother Rick Williams, Dr. Rick Williams now. He's now the academic dean at our college and he was the hardest teacher I had out of any class the whole time I was in Bible college. And it was my first semester of my freshman year. He was just as hard as it gets. But I'll tell you what, I learned more out of that Gospels Life of Christ class than I did out of just about any other class the rest of college. Why? Because oftentimes the hardest teachers can teach you the most. And they can teach you the most valuable lessons. Well, in the school of life, the toughest teacher you've ever had and that you'll ever have is the law, the Old Testament law. See, when you compare your life to the law, here's what you find out. I've got a lot of problems with God. Not that I have problems personally with God, but I'm in trouble with God. That's what you learn when you look at the law. It confronts your anger. It confronts your lust. It confronts your bitterness. It confronts the way that you treat your spouse. It confronts the way that kids treat their parents and the way that parents treat their kids. It, it confronts the, the boss and, and, and servant relationship. And, and it, it confronts uh, our, our guilt. It confronts our sinfulness is what the Old Testament law does. It confronts selfishness, pride, it confronts you at the core, and as hard as you might try to keep that law, it makes you realize that you simply cannot. But what the law ultimately teaches you is this, that because you can't keep it, you need somebody else who can. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so as hard as the law might be, as it condemns us and brings us under the wrath and the condemnation of God, as hard of a message as that might be, as hard of a lesson as that might be, it really teaches us the most valuable lesson we could ever learn, and that is we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And so the hardest teacher, the toughest teacher, teaches us the most valuable lesson. The nation of Israel would look at the Old Testament law as the only way to be righteous before God and to have eternal life. 
I was a little skeptical of that just from the standpoint that, that we know on this side of grace that it wasn't the law that ever saved them in the first place. It was the fact that, that they were the people of God and it was by faith. That was how they were saved. And so I thought through, even as we've gone through this study, I've even alluded a little bit to, oh, they didn't look to the law for perfect righteousness but, and, and acceptance before God and even eternal life. But then you read something in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish book of applications to the Old Testament law. And one rabbi said this, lots of Torah, which is the Old Testament law, lots of Torah, lots of life. He that has gotten the teachings of Torah has gotten himself eternal life. That's a quote from a rabbi. And so they did truly believe that, hey, if you keep the teachings of the law, you can have eternal life. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he pays the price to redeem man from his sinful condition and from the curse of the law, what happened is you have in Galatia that there are Jews who are still holding on to the Old Testament law. And they are saying, yes, we see that Jesus is the promised seed. We receive him as our savior, that he died on the cross to pay for our sin. But we still need, if we really want to be accepted with God, if we really want to be uh, pleasing to God, then we've got to keep the Old Testament law line for line. For a Gentile to be pleasing to God, he has to be circumcised and become a Jew. He can't eat bacon. He can't eat rabbits. He can't, he can't uh, do anything on Saturdays and even the extra holy days. He, he can't do anything on the Day of Atonement. He can't do anything on the Passover. He's got to observe. He's got to keep all those things, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, all of those things have to be kept intact. Why? Because their entire system and way of thinking was righteousness before God means righteousness by the law. It was how they thought. Well, Paul's been saying that before the law was the covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant that was by faith. And he's teaching them that the covenant by faith preceded and superseded the Old Testament law. It came before it and it was above it. Well, the next logical question to ask then is this. If faith was before the law, and if faith was above the law, then why have the law in the first place? Why did, we, why did we need the law if we were to be saved by faith? And so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to tell them that the law does in fact have a vitally important role in their salvation. I'm going to say something that's going to sound very controversial and something that's going to sound perhaps even heretical at first, but stick with me here. Without the law, you just might not be saved. Wait a second. That sounds like that's the opposite of what Paul is teaching. Bear with me here as we explain this. But without the law, you just might not be saved. So what is the purpose of the law if justification is by faith? I want you to look at, with me at verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? That's, that's what the question is here that Paul's addressing. 
What's the purpose of the law? What ministry does the law have in this Christian context then if it has nothing to do with salvation, if it has nothing to do with righteousness before God, why do we have it? And what he's going to tell them is that the purpose of the law was to reveal our sinful condition. That's what it was. He says, wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions. The law was added because of transgression. See, by nature, every single one of us are sinners before God. I'm not going to have to teach my daughter how to lie. She's going to figure that out real quick. I'm not going to have to teach. I didn't have to teach my, my six-year-old and my three-year-old how to fuss and fight with each other, how to be selfish, how to steal candy, how to steal cookies, how to do something wrong and then lie about it. We didn't teach them. We didn't train them. We've tried to do the opposite of that. And yet it's just what they do. Why? Because we're all born in this world, sinners by nature. When it says that it was added because of transgressions, it doesn't mean that because they didn't have the law beforehand, talking about Abram's day, because they didn't have the law beforehand, that they weren't sinners. That's not what this teaches. No, they were sinners. They were daily violating God's holiness. God calls them evil and wicked. In Genesis 6, he says that the imagination and the thoughts of man's heart is only evil continually. And so that, that doesn't mean that just because they didn't have the law that they weren't sinners. Rather, here's what the problem was. They were sinners, but without the law, they didn't realize it. They didn't necessarily know what sin was. They were just doing what sinners do. The law was given to Israel to reveal what constitutes as sin in God's eyes. He gave it to them because he wanted his chosen people to live right before him, to live holy. They were his holy, separate, sanctified people. And so they were to be different from the rest of the world around them. And so God looks at them as they're coming out of Egypt and they're resting there at the base of Mount Sinai. And he says, I want my people to know right up front what is acceptable and what is unacceptable in my sight. It revealed what sin was. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says this, For by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, it's the law that tells you, I have sinned. And then he goes on in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says this, Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And so he said, I would have no idea that I was lusting if the, unless the Bible didn't say, Thou shalt not covet. But because it says thou shalt not covet, now I know that I am lusting. And so that, that's what he's getting across to them, that the knowledge of the law does not make you a sinner. Rather, it shows you you already are a sinner. Because there are some passages that people would argue from because it, it appears to be as though that the law makes you a sinner. But no, the law reveals that you are a sinner. Let me... Let me put it this way. In this COVID-19 pandemic, um, there's been a lot of concern about asymptomatic carriers, right? We've heard all kinds of things about those who are asymptomatic. And so especially in the early stages of this, if you were exposed to somebody that had COVID, it was required of you to go and to test. And so maybe you'd go through one of those drive-thrus, you go through Walgreens. I had to do that a couple times. And they take out this big old swath and they tickle your brain with it, you know, and Ah, 
I, when we went to Mexico, we had to get tested before we could come back. And they go through, they, they test my, my daughter, five-year-old at the time. They test my son, two-year-old at the time. They do just fine. Hannah goes to test. She does just fine. They stick this thing up my nose. And I think this woman hated men or something. Because it felt like it was in there for 10 minutes. And before you know it, I got tears pouring out of my eyes. It's almost like she just liked to see men cry or something like that. And so I, that's going on. Well, you go and you get those tests. You get the results back. And it says that you're positive. Question. Did that little swab give you COVID? Did that test give you the Rona? <laughs> no. What did it do? It revealed you already had it. The, 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 the test didn't make you infected. It revealed that you were already infected. The Apostle Paul says that's what the law does. The law doesn't make you a sinner. The law reveals that you already are a sinner, that you've already got a problem and a problem that demands a solution, one that needs to be solved. And so just because man didn't have the law doesn't mean they weren't guilty. Rather, they were just unaware of their guilt before God. They were unaware of it. So God gave the law so that man might be aware of their guilt before him. When you got that test, what did they do with it? Did they say, all right, I want you to take this swab and I want you to swallow it and you'll be cured. Is that what they do? No, or what about when, when somebody's not feeling well, you take a thermometer and you put it under their tongue, you know, and it's, it's going and it's testing and it's beeping. And then it says, ding, 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 you're 104.3. I mean, you're almost dead. <laughs> That's bad. Okay, so then the doctor says, all right, I want you to take that thermometer. I want you to swallow it and that's going to help you. That's that's not how it works. That's ridiculous. We wouldn't do it that way. See, the thermometer, the test, it just tells you that something is wrong, but it's incapable of solving what is wrong. And so what you need is something that can solve the problem, something that can bring the solution to it. So you can't keep the law in hopes of solving the sin problem. Why? The law was never intended to be the solution. It was intended to show you that you have a problem with sin. He says, the law was added because of transgressions. And it says this, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Who's that talking about? Well, if we go back just a few, page, or a few verses, the Apostle Paul talks about how the promised seed of Abraham was Jesus Christ. And that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse himself. In other words, he took the guilt upon himself. He took the pain. He took the suffering and the torment and the agony. He took every single punishment that rightfully belonged to us. He took it upon himself so that we could be freed from our sin. It says he was till the promised seed. So the law was added until the promised seed would come. And then it says this, and it, speaking of the law, was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What's this talking about? Well, it doesn't reveal it to us in the Old Testament, but based on this passage, as well as Acts chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 2, evidently when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, that God chose to give it through angels to Moses, to the people. 
And so there's a four step process here. And it says that there was a mediator in the hands of a mediator. Well, who was the mediator? That was Moses. And so what God chose to do is he chose to give the law to the angels. They gave it to Moses and Moses gave it from God to the people. He was a mediator. A mediator is one who goes between two parties, who goes to one party on behalf of another party, whether it's from God to the people or from the people to God. It's like a priestly role is what a mediator is. And so it says that God gave the law through a mediator. And then he says this in verse 20. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to paint the picture this way. And in this context, remember, before we got to this passage, he was talking about the covenant promise made to Abram, Abraham. And so here's what he's talking about is when it came to the law, you had from God to the angels, to the people, through a mediator. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of different people involved here. But he says, but God is one. Now what's that about? He's referring back to the Abrahamic covenant. That see, when uh, we, we were in Genesis 15 on, uh, on Sunday night, and what happened there is, is God came to make the covenant with Abram. He brought him into the pathway, and he brought these three animals, and they cut them in half, because that's what the word covenant means. It means to cut. And so they divided these animals in half, and what would happen is two people would normally walk through those animals together, and they would say, basically declaring, if I break my part of this deal, then let me be as these animals, okay? It was a strong, formal covenant, a way of doing things back then. Well, what happens is Abram falls asleep and he receives this dream about his children's uh, captivity in Egypt and all those things. Great horror comes upon him. And when he wakes up, it's pitch black. It's pitch black. He opens his eyes and what he sees is God walking through the animals in, a, in the form of a smoking furnace and a flaming torch. And now it's just God walking through. It wasn't Abram and God. It was just God as Abram watched. You know what that means? This was a unilateral covenant. It was something that had nothing to do with Abram. Abram had no end to hold up. It was only God's responsibility to hold up his end of this deal, his end of this promise. And so what he's talking about is a mediator is not a mediator of one there's multiple parties involved. So you have the law from God to the angels, to Moses, to the people. But he says the covenant that came from God to Abram was of one. It was of God. Now you tell me what's, what's superior here. Is it from God through angels, through Moses, to the people, or is it from God to the people? It's from God to the people. That's what he's talking about here. And so the, the promise by faith, the covenant is most important here. And so now, Paul, what he's going to do is he's going to ask them then if the law is against the promises. Because now what's going to come up as they're thinking through this is, okay, so you're telling me that the law was not the same as the promise. That they were different. They had different roles. They had different responsibilities. So doesn't that mean then that the law is standing against the promises of God? It's working against the promises of God. If you're saying that righteousness can't be by the law, but the law says that righteousness is by the law, then isn't that working against the promise that's by faith? It's confusing, isn't it? 
Imagine studying it for the last couple of days. It is confusing, but it's very simple. What he says here in verse number 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. He says, absolutely not. Here's what he's, here's what he's going to show us here is that the law does not combat the promises of God. Rather, the law complements the promises of God. They come together. They complete each other. They have a part in this salvific work together. And so I want you to look at me at verse 21. Okay, it says, God forbid, for if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, what he's saying here is if righteousness could have come by the law, then righteousness would have come by the law. If it could have, it would have. Okay, that's what he's saying there. But by saying that, he's saying, so it doesn't come by the law. Because if it could, it would. But because it can't, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. And then he goes on in verse 22 and he says this, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Now, I want you to look at verse 23. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith. That word shut up is the same word translated concluded in verse number 21 or verse 22. What does that mean? Okay, why do you have concluded in one place and shut up in one place? Well, this particular word, it literally means to shut up on all sides. Okay, I want you to picture with me that you're shipping a package to somebody you get a box from the store, it's laid out flat. Then what you're going to do is you're going to open that box up and then you're going to fold the flaps down and you're going to seal it with tape. If it's something really heavy, you're going to tape all the way across the bottom of that box so it doesn't fall out the bottom. And then you're going to flip it up. You're going to put your package inside of that box and then you're going to fold the top flaps down on both sides and then you're going to tape the fire out of that too. And what that does is it makes sure what's inside of there is not coming out. It literally means to confine. It's a word that would be used in terms of to imprison. That you're shut up, you're sealed up, you're, you're unable to escape. He says, the scripture hath concluded all under sin. Shut up under sin. Sealed up under sin. Locked up under sin. That's what it's saying. Okay, but what, what this is not saying is that the law has shut you up under sin. That's not what it's saying. That's why the translators use the word concluded here instead of shut up here. What, they, what the translators are getting across is the thought, the original intent there, that what, what he's saying is that the law is going to bring you to the conclusion that you are shut up under sin, that you are locked up by your sin. That's what the law does. It shows you that you're in trouble here. Well, why does it bring you to that conclusion? It says this, that the promise by the faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Here's the reason why. If you don't realize you're shut up, you don't realize you need to be freed. If you don't realize you're locked up in prison, you don't realize that you need to be freed. But God wants you to be freed from your sin. He wants this promise that he gave to Abram that righteousness would be by faith. He wants that to be realized in your life. And so instead of letting you go on unaware of your sin, unaware of your condition that you're locked up under your sin, God says this, I'm going to give you the law 
so you can realize your sinful condition so that you can see your need of a Savior so the promise of faith by Jesus Christ can be realized in your life so you can no longer be trapped so you can be freed from your sin no longer held by its bondage and its power. You needed the law to show you you needed Christ. Look at verse 23. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. That word kept, it means to be guarded or watched by military. To have sentries placed around you. (laughs) To be held under lock and key. To be shackled. To have these soldiers guarding you and making sure that you can't escape. Making sure that you can't get out. He says that's what the law does. The law keeps you. It shackles you. It confines you. It guards you. It, It keeps you from being able to go out and be free. You're bound by it. You're bound to it. He says that before faith came, we were kept under the law. Here's that word again. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. What does that mean? Well, what happened is in your sin, you're, um, let me just put it along with our analogy. You were boxed up. You were boxed up in sin. The law came to show you you were boxed up in sin until the faith of Christ would afterwards be revealed. And once you realize that Jesus is the promise seen, that he is the way of salvation, then he can cut that box open and he can free you. See, he's kind of doubling up on his arguments here. He's saying that before faith came, we were kept, guarded, shut up, sealed up by the law. But once Christ came, by faith, that's no longer the case. And so what is the purpose of the law then here? What does Paul conclude? The next verse says, wherefore. Wherefore means this. In light of everything that we've talked about leading up to this, here's what I conclude. Wherefore. He says, the law was our schoolmaster To bring us unto Christ. Our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. What what exactly does that mean? Well, in the Greek culture, the real wealthy, upper class people, what they would do is, I mean, what we've got to think about, and let me just clear up a spot and say this, that that what the literal word of the schoolmaster is, is a pedagogue. Pedo meaning child, Gog meaning teacher, and so you've got a child teacher. But this isn't a math teacher. This isn't a science teacher. This isn't a history teacher or a grammar teacher. It's not, it's not that kind of a teacher. This is more like a boarding school teacher, more like a military school teacher. When you think of those teachers, those are a little bit different than the teachers in public schools today. They can be a little more firm a little more forceful, a little more disciplinarian with the kids. They have permission from parents to do that. That's the idea of what a schoolmaster is. What they would do in that culture is one of their very faithful, very trustworthy household servants, they would assign them to supervise one of their children between six and seven years old. And they would supervise them until they were about 16 or 17 years old and introduced to manhood. Well, what would they do? They'd follow these kids everywhere they go. What were they doing? Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't say that. 
Don't talk that way. Don't treat this person this way. Don't go that pathway. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be this. Be that. Don't be this. Don't be that. What they were is they were moral instructors. That's what the schoolmaster was. Why? Because this wealthy, upper class family did not want their kid going out into the community and acting like a moron, if I can put it that way. They didn't want them to bring shame, didn't want them to bring embarrassment to the family name. So they would send these schoolmasters. The Apostle Paul says that's what the law was in your life. The law was your schoolmaster. It did the same thing those schoolmasters did. It said, don't do this. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't covet thy neighbor's wife or their camels or their ox. Don't, don't covet thy neighbor's land. The law said, you've got to keep this holy day. The law said, you've got to keep this dietary law. The law said that, that you can't steal. The law said, don't remove your neighbor's landmark and take part of their land as yours. And so the law was constantly telling them, you can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. And ah, I'm shackled. <laughs> I feel like I can't do anything. Why? Because I've got to keep every line of this law. Why would God give us a schoolmaster like that? Why would God give us something that's constantly nitpicking at our lives? Here's why. A couple things. Number one, he's holy. And he has high expectations. And he does have a high standard of righteousness. In fact, the standard of righteousness is perfection. Absolute perfection. Not missing one of those rules, one of those laws. That's his standard. But it says, if you look at that verse, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. <laughs> See, that schoolmaster, he wasn't to be over this boy for the rest of his life. He was to be over this boy until he reached manhood a place of maturity, a place of understanding, a place of brokenness where he wasn't so proud, where he wasn't always going his own way, but where his heart was more tender and his heart was more willing to adapt. His heart was more submissive. And then eventually they would get to this place where the schoolmaster would be relieved of his duty and this young, young child had grown into a man and could go on into adulthood. <laughs> you know what the Apostle Paul's saying? He's saying that that's what the law is in our lives. It can only bring us so far. Think about what the Ju Judaizers are saying. Christ can only bring you so far. And then you need the law. But what Paul is saying, the law can only bring you so far. And what it brings you to is this realization. I can't do it. I can't. I need somebody else who can. And he says that somebody else is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was the sinless son of God. Holy, perfect, never did anything wrong in his entire life. He was absolutely sinless. He kept the law line for line, perfect, word for word, jot for jot, tittle for tittle. He kept every single one of them until the very day that he went to the cross of Calvary and there he shed his innocent blood. 
His innocent blood, His sinless blood to be the sacrificial atonement for our sins. He bore our sins in His body. He bore our grief. He bore our suffering. He took our death. He took our cross that rightfully belonged to us and He brought it upon Himself. Why? So that we who could not keep the law could trust in His ability to keep the law and in the blood that He shed for our sin so that we could be declared righteous justified before God. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. What does it say? That we might be justified by faith, not by the works of the law. Jesus did everything that it took, not only to initiate our salvation and our righteousness with God, but to finish it. He did it all. Look at verse number 25. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? Just like eventually the schoolmaster is relieved of his duty, there comes a place when the law is relieved of its duty. What is, what is Paul's purpose here? What's he trying to get, get across to them? He's, he's trying to tell them this, that you don't need to go back to the law. You don't need to go back to the law. And here's the reason why. Because the law has already served its purpose of bringing you to Christ. It's already served its purpose. And once it served its purpose, it no longer has a purpose. That's what he's saying in terms of righteousness, in terms of salvation. So what is the purpose of the law for you tonight? What is the purpose of the law in my life? It's the same thing that it was all back then, and the same thing it has been since it was first given, and that is the purpose of the law is to show a sinner that he needs a Savior. That's what it does. See, the law still can't solve the problem of sin. You still can't be made righteous before God by the works of the law. You still can't keep it perfectly. All it takes is one lie. All it takes is one, one thing that you steal. All it takes is one impure thought. All it takes is one ounce of disrespect towards your parents. That is all that it takes to violate God's holiness and to be shut up in sin. That's all it takes. The law can't save you, can't make you righteous, can't make you accepted with God, and it can't give you eternal life. All the law can do is reveal you have a problem. Several years ago, I hurt my back at work. And so I had to go to a workers' comp doctor, and they referred me to go and get an MRI done. So I came up here over off 28th and Iris and went into this imaging place, and I laid there flat on the table, they put some noise-canceling headphones on my ears and they retracted me back into that tomb of claustrophobia. And I started hearing the pings and, you know, and they gave me something that made them, you know, see every, all, everything that they needed to see. And so I'm in there. I come out. They've got the results. And they said this, okay, your spine is supposed to be like this. You've got three vertebrae that are like this. So you've got a problem. That's why your back's hurting. But I walked away very disappointed because they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't operate on it. They couldn't give me medication. They could knock those things back in place. They couldn't do a single thing about it. So you know what they did? They referred me to a chiropractor. So I go to a chiropractor and I'm like, this isn't going to work. But I go there and you know what this guy does? I'm laid out on a table again. 
he takes these little electrodes and he puts them on my back and they're tingly and they're nice and they're massaging me and, you know, just relaxing those muscles and everything. And then he comes in with this little thing that is just like a, a I don't even know what you call it. It's a spring loaded something. And he comes up my back and he presses that thing on my back and goes click. And he does it again and he does it again. And that was it. And you know what he was doing? He was knocking those things back in place. And you know what happened? My back got better. And I felt much better for it. But see, when I went to that imaging place, I went there looking for a solution. And they didn't have a solution. But you know what they could do? They could refer me to somebody who does have a solution. See, and I never would have come to the place of healing. I never would have come to the place of change had they not referred me to the one who could solve the problem. Listen, that's what the law does. Is you can't come to the law looking to it for a solution. Like it's going to make you righteous. Like it's going to clean you up. Like it's going to justify you before God. That it's going to get you into heaven. You can't look to the law for that because it was never intended for that purpose. The law cannot save you. It cannot redeem you. But you know what it can do? It can show you that you can't save yourself by keeping the law. But that there is somebody who can save you. And that is Jesus Christ the one to whom all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies and all the, the, the feasts and all those things pointed to Jesus Christ so that when he came and he suffered and bled and died on the cross, you could look at that and you could see the fulfillment of the Passover back in Exodus. You could see the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement taking place, the fulfillment of the scapegoat taking our sins far away into the wilderness. You could see the, the portrayal of Jesus Christ all through the Old Testament real Realizing this, the law couldn't save me, but it could refer me to the one who could, the one who could solve the problem. The law's purpose in your life is to diagnose your problems of sin. It's to reveal that you're an angry person. It reveals that you're a lustful person. It reveals that something's more important to you than God. It reveals the hateful tendencies you might have, the covetous desires that you might have. It reveals the way that you steal time from work. It reveals the way that you may hate a brother without a cause. It reveals the way that, that you would sin time and time and time again. But that shouldn't make you mad. That shouldn't get you upset. That shouldn't make you hate the law. It should bring you to love the law because it shows you this I need Jesus it pointed you to the right person and then what happens is when the law refers you to Christ then the gospel steps in and grace steps in and it tells you that there is a savior who died for you to pay the price for your sin, to bear your guilt upon himself and to set you free from your sin and to provide you forgiveness and everlasting life. And so while you can't be saved by the works of the law, you can be saved by the faith of Jesus Christ. If you're already saved, that means the law has already served its purpose in your life. So why would you go back to it? Why would you go back to trying to keep line for line something that you couldn't keep anyways? That's Paul's argument here. See, Christ has given you all the righteousness that you'll ever need. And he's given you the Holy Spirit to be your new schoolmaster, to be your new governor. Now it's the Holy Spirit that says you shouldn't have thought that. 
You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have gone there. You shouldn't have spent your money on that. You shouldn't have wasted your time over there. Now it's the Holy Spirit telling you, you ought to be in church. You ought to be reading your Bible. You ought to be praying. You ought to be doing these things. And it's not Old Testament law. It's living like Christ. See, what the Judaizers were doing was they were teaching a B.C. lifestyle in an A.D. lifetime. And there's no reason for you to go back and live in a B.C. lifestyle when you live in an A.D. lifetime. A day when Jesus saved you. A day when he fulfilled the law on your behalf and died for your sin. See, the Holy Spirit is all that you need and Christ is all that you need. So there's no reason to go back to something that's already served its purpose. But let me balance it with this. It doesn't mean we should never look to the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we should never go back to the law at all. See, we're going through Genesis on Sunday nights. When we finish that in about 10 years, we'll go into Exodus. And then we'll go into Leviticus. And then we'll get into Numbers and Deuteronomy. Well, wait a second, Pastor Mark. That's law. I thought you said that we don't need to go back to the law. Listen, Regardless of whether keeping the law line for line and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the dietary laws and circumcision, whether or not all those are still in effect, the Old Testament law still reveals to us what constitutes as sin in God's eyes. And so as we go through the Old Testament law, you know what it helps us do? It helps us realize sometimes our sinful tendencies to say, boy, I'm just like Israel was back then. Or I have the same tendencies to be like that. I have the same tendencies to think that way. I have the same tendencies to talk that way. And it can, again, serve its purpose of revealing, its, revealing sin in our life. Why? For daily confession. To get it right with God. To get that sin under the blood. We're not talking about a second salvation. We're just talking about living daily, pure, and cleansed before God. And the law can still help us in that way. But though another way that the law still helps us is it shows us this. Every day, I still fall short. And I still need Jesus today. And it brings us to our knees to say, God, it's another day. My flesh, my sinful flesh still wants to war against the spirit. And I need your help to make sure that I'm walking in the spirit and not living after the flesh. Or God, I've messed up and I need forgiveness. See, it can still reveal us our sin in our lives. And it still points us back to Jesus Christ. But what happens is when you depend on the law for keeping a right standing or for having greater blessing or greater acceptance with God, then you end up looking to the law for a purpose for which it was never intended. What you're doing is you're swallowing the test trying to get better. You're swallowing the thermometer. You're going back to the MRI specialist trying to have something that wasn't designed to be the solution to be the solution in your life. And it'll be a futile task that you're trying to accomplish. Lastly, I want to finish with this, that the law serves a purpose in our evangelistic efforts as well as a church. Because we can't go out into our community and just skirt over sin, just gloss over it. What this tells us is that what this community needs is the law. They need to know and understand I'm shut up in sin. I'm confined 
I'm imprisoned and I'm under the wrath and condemnation of God. They need somebody who can go to them and say, and, and listen, it's not from the perspective of do this and do this and do this and do this and you'll be saved and you'll be right with God and you'll go to heaven. That's not what we're talking about. It's taking the law and saying, you've already done this and you've done this and you've done this and you've done this and you're in trouble with God. But listen, I am too. But I can show you and I can take you to somebody who hadn't done any of those things. I can take you to somebody who perfectly fulfilled this law and yet he died and gave his life and bore your sin and your guilt and your condemnation on the cross of Calvary so he could free you and forgive you from all of these transgressions that you've committed. They need somebody to come and be honest with them and show them they need a savior and the law can serve that purpose. See, the purpose of the law is to show sinners they need a Savior. And if you're here tonight and you've been trusting in your good works, they'll never be enough. That wasn't the design of them in the first place. It was to show you, I still messed up. For all the good I've done in this world, I've still lied. For all the good in this, I've done in this world, I've still committed adultery in my heart through lust. Through all the good that I've done in this world, I've still hated somebody. I'm still a sinner. But Jesus did it for you. And he died for you. And if you'll come to him, not by law, but by faith, you'll be forgiven, you'll be righteous, and you'll have eternal life. And if you're in here tonight and you're still trying to be more pleasing to God or more accepted to God by doing good works, whether we're talking about the law or if we're just talking about charity, if we're talking about baptism, church membership, giving your mission, if missions money, if you're doing all of those things to try to gain greater acceptance with God, you need to realize that's taking you back into bondage. Your good works can't make you any more accepted with God than you already are in Christ. So keep trusting in him and keep resting in him and he'll do it for you. Father, we come to you tonight and we're thankful for our Savior. Thankful for everything he did, everything he accomplished for us at the cross. I'm thankful that my salvation and righteousness is not dependent on me being a good person because I would fall so short. It's not dependent on my ability to keep the law because I can't. But I'm thankful that Jesus did. I pray if there's anyone in here tonight that's not trusted Christ as their Savior, that that would change tonight and they'd trust in Him. That if there's somebody tuning in online, that's never received Jesus Christ. I pray that they would reach out to us, that we could show them from the Bible how they can know their sins are forgiven, that they have eternal life. I pray they'd make that step. I pray that if there's anyone here that's been wearing themselves out, trying to work their way into better favor with you, I pray they'd rest in who Jesus is and what he's provided and just let him live in them. So please bless our time of response in Jesus' name.